Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. So let's get into the DSM-5 criteria for autism together and debunk any myths or misconceptions about it. All right, you guys. So I wanted to go through the DSM-5 criteria with you guys and elaborate on the symptoms in more detail and context as to how those specific criteria presents in me. I think this is super important because the DSM-5 criteria for autism is still very, very simplistic in many ways. I feel like it doesn't really encompass the spectrum in which a lot of autistic individuals, especially autistic women, find themselves presenting in. This is where a lot of the misdiagnosing can take place or not getting diagnosed at all. The medical professionals who take those symptom criteria so at face value that if you don't meet those standards to a T, they don't count it as autism. I wanted to go through those criterias and explain how I specifically fit into the criteria, how it's not something that you could see at face value. There's a lot of nuances there. Hopefully it could help you guys with your own journey with discovering your autism. Let's get into it. So right now, the DSM-5 is the most updated symptom criteria. I do know that they update this criteria list as much as possible to stay up to date with research. This is why it's so important to raise awareness on autism and what the spectrum looks like because hopefully as more and more people get diagnosed and as more and more autistic individuals get researched, a lot of the researchers can begin to update their symptom criteria list to be a lot more accommodating towards other individuals on the spectrum that may have not met the symptom criteria list that was previously used by medical professionals to diagnose and assess individuals. So going down the list, to meet diagnostic criteria for ASD according to DSM-5, a child must have persistent deficits in each three areas of social communication and interaction, plus at least two or four types of restricted, repetitive behaviors. That's something I think is super important to highlight is, are these deficits something that was consistent throughout your life? That's something that a lot of evaluators look for, and that's something I also looked for in myself as well. Are these deficits that I just developed you know, at a certain point in my life? Is it on and off? And through my research into my past, I was able to identify and corroborate that I did have these deficits from a very, very young age, and it was consistent every single year for my whole life, essentially. That's something that I think is just like an objective issue that can make it easier for you into determining whether or not you may be autistic. For those viewers out there who still are deliberating as to whether or not you have autism, I think a good indication that you may have other things like personality disorders or other disorders in general is if your deficits weren't consistent. The first thing on this list says deficits in social-emotional reciprocity ranging, for example, from abnormal social approach and failure of normal back-and-forth conversation to reduced sharing of interests, emotions, or affect to failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. Okay, so there's a lot of nuance there, which is good to see. For me, in specific to this symptom criteria, 
When I was little, I feel like my social reciprocity looked to outsiders more like the inability to understand and empathize with others. I found through my report cards, there was a lot of notes that my teachers wrote that I had issues getting along with other kids. I've gotten feedback that I seemed like I was a bully because a lot of the times I wanted things a certain way and I had a hard time accepting and understanding that other kids were not always going to do things the way I wanted to and in the same ways. And by trying to force other kids to do things how I wanted to, it, it was like bullying type of behavior. Also as well, the inability to understand why another kid was doing something a certain way and feeling a certain way was seen as being mean or not empathetic. But I think underneath all of that, the inability to be empathetic or seeming like I was a cold person, seeming like I was a bully, Underneath that was just the inability to understand other kids my age, being able to interpret what they're going through, why they're going through it, why they're doing what they're doing. That kind of translates to children, autistic children, in a sense where they seem more selfish. They seem like they just want to do things how they want to do it, and they want everyone to follow along with that. I feel like that's kind of where a lot of misconceptions can come along because I feel like from my own experience, I wasn't malicious. I wasn't selfish because I wanted to hurt others because I knew I was being selfish. A lot of the times, like I genuinely didn't know that I was being interpreted in a certain way, that my actions or inactions were being interpreted in these specific ways of like being labeled as a bully or being labeled as being cold and unempathetic. I didn't know that that was the case. I think if I had known that, I wouldn't have done the things I was doing to be interpreted as so. And that's a part of like the harsh reality of growing up as an autistic individual is that you kind of learn a general sense of like being wrong for being who you are. It's not necessarily that you are wrong for who you are. It's the fact that others are constantly misinterpreting you and you learn to do otherwise in order to be interpreted in a more positive light. In order for me to make up for these negative characteristics that I found myself being labeled as, I became overly appeasing and accommodating. I had almost like accepted those labels, being a difficult child, being a bully, being mean, being unempathetic and cold. And I tried to make up for it by being overly nice to everyone in every situation, by constantly taking my needs and my wants, putting it on the side in order to show up for and appease other people and make them happy in hopes of not being labeled as difficult. And so I went through that phase of almost being like that timid, shy girl that was like too nice. And that was also not really an authentic version of me as well, but I felt like I was almost trying to tip the scale on the other end in order to bring more balance. But of course, it was just continuing the repetition of imbalance, but just in another way. I think this also led to this trait right here, reduce sharing of interests or failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. I think a part of having such negative social interactions in general, whether that's being negatively labeled or if that's constantly appeasing other people, 
what that kind of does to an individual is that it makes social interactions kind of painful and tiring to go through because you're not allowed to show up and exist how you want to and how it feels natural to you. Over time, you get really, really tired having to be someone else or being negatively judged for being yourself. And so what that does is that you begin to hide away in your own shell and it's not because you necessarily don't trust others. It's not because you don't crave to socialize and connect with others. It's just the fact that you want to be yourself. You want to express yourself freely and to just be comfortable. And a lot of the times what that looks like is just being on your own. I think a lot of the times it translates on the DSM-5 as like not wanting to socialize and not socializing. It's not really that. I think if autistic individuals were allowed to show up how they want to and what feels natural to them, autistic individuals are probably gonna be a lot more sociable than we think that they are, but that's not the case. And so a lot of the times in order to maintain our own mental health and our own energetic levels, we have to spend that time on our own and in our solitude because we don't have to deal with the judgments of other people or constantly needing to appease to their needs and their wants. What do you guys think about my sweater? I crocheted this myself. Also the top underneath, I crocheted all of this. It's definitely my new hobby. It helps with my trichotillomania and I just love it. Anytime I wear something crocheted, you guys can count that I made it. The second trait is deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction, ranging, for example, from poorly integrated verbal and nonverbal communication to abnormalities in eye contact and body language or deficits in understanding use of gestures to a total lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication. So this part, I feel like directly translates to childhood me more because I generally didn't understand how to interpret other people or social interactions but as you get older what I feel like begins to happen is that through your observations you begin to collect a book full of patterns and what certain things mean and the difference between let's say an autistic person and an holistic person is that an holistic person can naturally learn this it becomes very subconscious for them so they could be able to come in and out of different social interactions without having to put much effort or thought into it to a certain extent of course but for an autistic person it's something that you always have to be consciously thinking of and a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're constantly referencing back to that thick book that you collected over your lifetime as to what certain things mean in general or to a certain person what their patterns are what their facial expressions probably mean all of these things and you're trying to apply it to every single situation and that gets really 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 tiring as you may imagine but I feel like a misconception is that autistic people are just socially dumb. Like we don't understand it and we don't know how to partake in it. That's not the case. That doesn't account for a lot of autistic individuals who are really, really good at masking and pattern recognition. I myself am pretty good at pattern recognition and masking, of course, to an extent. A lot of people would look at me and not think that I was autistic because I can come across as an holistic person. I can mask my autistic traits. I can look at someone and understand what they're going through and be able to interpret it. But what is different in that nuance there is that it takes a lot of effort for me to do so, 
to interpret others and to come across in a way where others can interpret me in the way that I want them to. So for example, if I want to express to someone that I'm a nice person, that I am accepting and open, I can't just be myself and they would understand that. I have learned over time that in order for me to get someone to see me in a certain way, I have to put on an act and say things in a certain way and do things in a certain way for them to interpret it as so. Likewise, I learned over time that I can't interpret it in the way where if I put myself in their shoes, if I were to do what they did, it would mean a specific thing. I learned to have to interpret someone's intentions and actions through their specific lens. So let's say someone is super nice to me and smiles all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean that they like me or that they're nice. It could mean that they're just used to smiling to people that they also don't like. And I have to be able to interpret all those layers, right? Going through the history of how they interact with others, going through the history of how they've interacted with me, trying to like put together a story. A lot of the times, holistic people don't feel the need to do all of this, like connecting and interpreting and pattern recognition. And I think this is why a lot of autistic individuals end up being really exhausted by social interactions is because we're constantly trying to interpret. Interpret, 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 interpret others and do things so that others can interpret us. And it's so, 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 so tiring. And I think that's why some autistic people end up giving up on having to do all this and just end up showing up more authentically to themselves, becoming more autistic because they give up on the need to mask and interpret and do all of this stuff. You just don't have enough energy for it sometimes. But that's something I wanted to highlight because it's not that there's an inability to do so. That's not the case. Just because I'm autistic doesn't mean I can't camouflage and blend in and come across as non-autistic. Just because other people are really good at blending in as well doesn't mean they're not also autistic. But I think something that's very interesting that goes along with this specific symptom criteria is the fact that one, I'm always like fatigued from social interaction because of what I just said. But two, another thing that goes along with it is just this state of being that I always find myself in where I'm constantly observing people so deeply. I think a big part of it is that I'm always constantly trying to interpret things, also keep track of things and connect it all together somehow. A lot of the times when I'm in social interactions, especially when there's more than one person, I find myself more in the viewer standpoint because I'm just basically like writing notes in my head how is this person talking to this other person? How does this person usually talk to other people? How does this person usually talk to me? How does this person usually show up in past interactions? And I'm just constantly interpreting all of these social interactions so that I can ultimately calculate how I need to show up in these specific interactions as a group or individualistically, things like that. And a lot of that time that kind of translates to me being more quiet, me being more to myself or me being disinterested, me being detached. A lot of people could see me in group interactions and think Irene's intimidating. She's just standing there and watching us and not really interacting. She's not really saying anything. Her face is just kind of blank. Does she not want to be here? Does she not enjoy interacting with us? Does she not want to? And it's not that. It's just a lot of the times I'm in the calculation mode in my head, calculating and keeping track of all of these social interactions and trying to interpret it. So that's also something that you can look out for. And 
other people in your life can look out for as to a way this autistic symptom can show up that is not directly so literal as having that social deficit. A lot of the times what that can translate into is just someone just kind of like being a wallflower, for example. I feel like this is also something that is different for everyone, but we like to think that autistic people cannot make eye contact and that is a tall tale sign of autism. That's not true at all. Throughout my life, I have been able to maintain eye contact with people throughout conversation. I don't necessarily feel uncomfortable with eye contact. I don't have a specific aversion or inability to make eye contact with someone. I feel like what this is a lot of the times is just like a processing thing. A lot of the times in order for us to process what other people are saying, what we want to say, a situation, we cannot specifically maintain eye contact in order to do that processing. So it's not necessarily that you want to avoid eye contact or you can't make eye contact. It's just the fact that in order to continually process and show up and do all these things, your eyes oftentimes has to wander around and like look all these different directions and not have to concentrate on eye contact and also talking. It's just really hard to do. A lot of the times I notice that when I need to think about what I have to say, process my thoughts and also speak it out loud, I can't necessarily maintain eye contact while doing so or else I just can't really communicate and process my thoughts to the highest ability. And so what that translates into is that in order for me to speak more fluently, I have to allow myself to look around, to close my eyes. A sacrifice I can make while talking and making eye contact is sacrificing my thought process sometimes and my ability to speak on things more smoothly. To go along with that, it doesn't mean I can't maintain eye contact. I feel like I maintain eye contact really well when other people are talking to me or in situations where I don't necessarily have to talk or process my own thoughts. So when someone's talking to me or if I'm just doing a social interaction like buying groceries and checking out at the line, I can maintain eye contact really well because I don't necessarily have to think about what I'm gonna say. So the third trait on this list is deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships ranging, for example, from difficulties adjusting behavior to suit various social contexts, to difficulties in sharing imaginative play or in making friends, to absence of interest in peers. This one's interesting because it's kind of like this idea that you are not able to necessarily relate to other people that are different from you. This is like where my autism can really come in because from my eyes and from a lot of my clients' eyes, when we see other people interacting and spending a lot of time with each other and they have no interests or not much to relate on and we see them choosing to be together anyways, a lot of the times for us, we translate that into being dishonest. Like, why are you suppressing yourself in order to be with another person and why are they also suppressing themselves in order to be with you? That just kind of seems miserable. Why would you do that? Um, don't you want to be with someone that you could authentically share similar interests and a love for similar things or just simply do things on your own? Sometimes that could be lonely, but at least you could be doing things that you genuinely love. And again, it's not like we have the inability to be able to show interest in friendships or relationships that do not 
necessarily align or share similar interests with us. It's just the fact that it's painful to make that sacrifice. So in the past, I would make the sacrifice, of course, because it's normalized and that's what I observed in others. But over time, it just became so uncomfortable and not fulfilling that I naturally started to go off and do my own thing or just whittle down my group of friends to be smaller and smaller because I started to become pickier and pickier with who I surround myself with. And I find that a lot of people normally in social interactions and big groups of friends are people who are just surrounded by others who are nothing like them and don't necessarily like the same things, but they enjoy being surrounded by them anyways. And that doesn't necessarily make sense. Again, you know, it's not that we have the inability to adjust behaviors to suit various social contexts. I think it just feels like to us being manipulative or lying. Like, why do I need to adjust myself to a social context? That's just me lying to everyone and making them believe I'm something or someone else. My psychologist explained how that's part of the autism, like seeing things in a very rigid way. Like I very easily, and my clients have this as well, we easily see masking and adjusting yourself to be more like another person and more acceptable in social situations. We see that as like a sense of dishonesty and manipulation, but I think holistic people just see that as like normal and what you should be doing, which is why this is described as an autistic trait. So another symptom criteria is restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities, stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech. So examples of this is lining up toys, flipping objects, echolalia, idiosyncratic phrases. So our idea of autism when it comes to repetitive restricted behaviors is rocking back and forth, flapping your hands, things like that. But that's just one very narrow way at looking at autism. For me, repetitive restricted behaviors is things like pulling my hair, is things like having to do a specific routine every single morning, having to make my coffee in a very specific way, having to drink my coffee from very specific cups, needing to have my bathroom smell a specific way and be cleaned in a specific way, needing to make sure that the colors of my outfit just feels right, Sometimes I will literally leave the house after 30 minutes of putting an outfit together and I'll literally be driving and realize the color of my shoes is not matching the color of my pants and sweater the way I wanted to and I will literally turn back, drive back home and switch the shoe so that I could feel comfortable with how everything just is put together and being very, very OCD about those types of things. Repetitive behaviors can also be me rewatching the same TV shows and movies over and over and over again, wanting to re-experience things over and over and over again. A lot of the times people want new experiences, but I find a lot of autistic individuals want to re-experience something that they know they'll like and they know what to expect from it. And I think that's a big part of it like finding a deep sense of fulfillment and comfort from knowing what to expect and not wanting to be surprised. A lot of people will say, 
like they wish they could wipe their memory so that they could experience something for the first time again. For me, I never was able to relate to that because I feel like I actually experience a more enriching, more comforting and fulfilling experience when I know what to expect, I know what it could feel like and I could actually experience it again. And this time around, I can almost lose myself in that experience even more because I know I could feel safe to do so. So it's almost like I don't have to brace. I could actually like relax into it. I like to travel and I've had bad experiences traveling and I've had amazing experiences traveling. But what I find is common for me is that when I do experience traveling to a country that I loved traveling to, I want to go back to that country again and again and again. And it's not even like wanting to experience different things this time around. It's literally this deep need to go back and experience the same things I did the first time, but experience it again. And a part of that is like wanting to see the little differences here and there in the same experience but because it's played out differently with different people and different circumstances, you can almost like tap into those different nuances there this time around. And that's super fun as well because it's kind of like you're able to experience spontaneity in a way that makes you feel comfortable. Insistence on sameness and flexible adherence to routines or ritualized patterns or verbal or nonverbal behavior extreme distress in small changes, difficulties with transitions, rigid thinking patterns, greeting rituals, need to take same route to eat same food every day. Okay, this one's like super, super straightforward for me at least. A way in which this shows up in my life is I have very specific routes that I like to drive on to get to certain places. And I've noticed that when I'm not driving and I'm in the passenger seat, and someone else is driving and we're going to a specific place, I'll have a very clear idea of how to get to that place. And if the person is not driving on the same roads and taking the same turns that I would, I would feel extremely uncomfortable. And I'll find myself telling them, why are you going this way? Why don't you go on this road? Why didn't you make that turn? And it's because I have a very specific preference as to how I want something done. And this is kind of like that OCD tendency that my psychologist says coincides with autism. The difference between OCD normally and OCD within the confines of autism is that within autism, it's like you know exactly what you want to do and how to do it. You know how satisfying it makes you feel. And it's not like you have the inability to do otherwise. It's just why would you want to do otherwise when you know how euphoric and comfortable you're gonna feel if you were able to do it the way you know how to do it and you're used to doing it. Why would you veer outside of it, right? I think OCD outside of autism is like you have to do it and it makes you uncomfortable if you can't because it's just like a compulsory thing and you just have to do it. It's not necessarily that you want to, it's just because you have to do it. With autism, it's like you have a euphoric feeling and you want to do it and that's why you want to do it. The next thing on this list is highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus strong attachment to or preoccupation with unusual objects, excessively circumscribed or perseverative interests. So this one I think could be elaborated more on because with our idea of autism and how it's usually portrayed, 
it's like an autistic person is super interested in spaceships or dinosaurs, right? It's almost like this childlike obsession with something. But for a lot of adults and for a lot of female adults, our special interests can be of things that are not usually associated to autism. So for example, my special interests and a lot of other women's special interests is psychology and understanding people, things like personality tests, stuff like that. And I feel like these special interests are more normalized and not necessarily associated to autism. So people just think, oh, she likes to understand others or she's very empathetic or things like that. When in reality, that could be your special interest. You know, a way that I started to understand that my special interests in personality tests and people and psychology wasn't necessarily normal was the fact that I had to know people's zodiac signs all the time and it's something that I didn't necessarily know when I could or couldn't ask someone of their zodiac sign. I would literally you know, ask people of their zodiac sign in situations where it could be inappropriate and in situations where someone very clearly expresses to me that they're not interested or they don't believe in zodiac signs but I would still ask them and talk about it and it's kind of like that inability to stop talking about something that you're very interested in and it's not necessarily because you're selfish or because you just want to talk about something you want to talk about and you can't see that the other person doesn't want to talk about it a lot of the times when i would get into these word vomit type of conversations where i find myself like compulsively talking about something i love and the other person doesn't want to i could tell that they're uncomfortable i could tell that they're judging me negatively but it's this inability to stop anyways because I'm so passionate about it. And there's aspects of me that feels uncomfortable as well because I could tell the other person is not happy with me and they don't want to talk and they want to stop the conversation. But I just go on anyways because one, I love it. And two, I don't necessarily know how to pivot outside of that conversation at that point and to stop it and to leave. Being attached to inanimate objects and things like that is, is common for me as well. I have this specific spoon and fork that I like to eat with. And one day I couldn't find that fork. I literally was so distraught because I didn't want to eat my food with any other fork. I just didn't know where it went. And I felt really, really disturbed with the fact that this thing disappeared and I wasn't expecting it to disappear and I don't know what happened to it. It's like you have a hard time understanding and coping with changes and changes that happen without your knowledge or consent. Consent is a big part of autism, I find. Like it's one thing if you knew something happened to your fork and you knew how it was lost or damaged or thrown away. It's like now you have to just deal with letting go of that object. But when something happens and you don't know how it happened or you didn't have an opportunity to consent to it, it makes it really, really hard to deal with and, and let go of. The next thing is hyper or hypoactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment, apparent indifference to pain, temperature, adverse response to specific sounds, textures, excessive smelling or touching of objects, visual fascination with lights or movement. Okay, so this one I feel like I talk about all the time in my other videos, aversions from certain sensory inputs and outputs and also just 
extreme preferences towards sensory experiences. So for example, for me, I could be very sensitive when it comes to touch. So I don't like when someone grabs me or touches me and I wasn't expecting it or preparing for it. And I could feel it right away. A lot of the times throughout my life, people have told me, you have really fast reactions. Because when they like want to go poke me or tickle me, I immediately react and tense up. And I just hate it. I also don't like hot showers or hot baths. Cold showers or cold baths, I always need to take lukewarm showers and baths because I don't like extreme temperatures. When I was in swim team, for example, we would go to the hot tub after practice and everyone would just soak into the water and melt and it felt really relaxing. But for me, I always had to sit outside of the hot tub with my feet inside of it because fully emerging my body in the hot tub was just too much and it was too intense for me. That's kind of like the hypersensitivity aspect, but also when it comes to hyposensitivity, I felt like throughout my life, I had extremely high pain tolerance. So in that sense, it's like very contradictory and doesn't make much sense. Like I have tattoos all over my body in extremely painful places. I felt a sense of meditation when I was able to get these tattoos. And a lot of people would look at me and think like, how did you get that tattoo? It's huge and it's in such painful places. And I thought to myself, it was okay. I was able to meditate through it. And a lot of it has to do with the hyposensitivity, being able to dull your senses in a sense and like be able to withstand a lot of pain. Also, I have endometriosis. So there's chronic pain that has to do with that. And most people wouldn't be able to put up with the pain that I've had to deal with, but it's not necessarily that you don't feel the pain. It's the fact that experiencing pain and high amounts of pain, it makes you meditate in a way because in a sense you disassociate in order to cope with the pain. It's almost like you like the disassociation part of it rather than the painful part. It's not that you don't feel pain. It's the fact that the pain makes it so that you could focus and concentrate and numb yourself better. Does that make sense? A lot of the times I find autistic individuals do have a tendency to disassociate and have episodes of depersonalization and derealization. And I think a lot of it has to do with our sensory experiences, being hypersensitive and hyposensitive as a result to meditating through painful experiences. Symptoms cause clinically significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of current functioning. This one is, is also, I think, important to talk about because a lot of the times prior to getting diagnosed with autism, people are already struggling with other issues in their life, mental, physical health issues. For example, before I was diagnosed, I was already struggling with anxiety and depression and PTSD. And I didn't think that these things were associated with autism, but a lot of it is associated with autism. And sometimes a lot of... And I truly don't think we talk about that enough. The fact that there are so many other mental health conditions that are comorbid 
with autism, I feel like a lot of the times because depression and anxiety, for example, are so normal and normalized and so many people without autism have these conditions, we don't necessarily associate that the depression and anxiety can be because of the undiagnosed autism and be related. And so I think it's important to talk about how struggling with life is not just this ambiguous things. A lot of it has to do with depression and anxiety and all these other things that are associated to your autism. You know, not being able to maintain a job for more than two years, for example, or maintain a group of friends for a long period of time, or not being able to uphold certain responsibilities or take care of yourself in certain ways. These are all things that could just seemingly be struggles of life that others can have, but could be because of the autism. And that's why I think it's so important for me to kind of go over the DSM-5 in this type of manner because a lot of the times I find a lot of autistic individuals read these criteria and we discount our autism because we think that if we don't look like this idea of autism, we must not be autistic. It could also just be a general ignorance that society has on autism and what the spectrum looks like. But hopefully with my videos and with this video in specific, you guys can continually learn that our idea and your idea of autism might not be what you have always expected it to be. I know for a fact as I learn more about autism and my autism, it's definitely not what I had thought it would be. And I spent years working with autistic kids, autistic individuals. I was literally certified as a behavioral technician prior to getting diagnosed with autism. If anything, my idea of autism was so literal and, and ignorant, right? It's just very nice for me to begin to open my eyes to what the spectrum really could look like, not just in general, but for me. It's really cathartic for me to go through this list and begin to talk about the DSM-5, something I literally studied for, took a test for. It's so cathartic for me to go through that symptom criteria and explain how my specific autistic symptoms can apply to the symptom criteria and explain those nuances there that is not necessarily touched on in the symptom criteria list. So with that being said, I hope this video was helpful for you guys watching. Of course, if it was, give this video a like and subscribe to my channel. I make new videos every single week. With that being said, I will see you guys on next week's video. Bye guys.